Welcome back to Love Letters and Mixtapes. I'm so glad you're here. This week, I wanted to share a topic with you that I've really been exploring for the last 10 years, and that topic is emotional sobriety. I found that this is one of the core foundational topics that touches every aspect of my life, whether that be my professional life, family life, romantic partnerships, friendships, finances, health, you name it. Emotional sobriety comes up. And so to begin, what is emotional sobriety and why is it important? And why does it keep showing up in all these other areas of my life? Someone once shared with me that for them, being emotionally sober means that you're comfortable being present with all of your feelings without any of them defining or controlling you. And I love that description because sometimes we face things in life and it can feel like a tidal wave when the reality is that's actually just a baby wave that we could easily navigate just by dropping underwater for a moment. And it turns out that the actual tidal wave was comprised of all of our emotions, like our history, the past, the present that we now associate with what's happening combined with you know, the big story we're telling ourselves about what's happening. And that's a pretty important aspect of emotional sobriety. The stories we tell ourselves. How often is our perception or fear running the show and feeding us lines that actually have nothing to do with the present moment? What would it feel like to pause and actually say to ourselves, what story am I telling myself about this person, place, or thing? And then going further and saying, what evidence supports that story? <laughs> you know, like, do I have any, or is it really just in my head? And taking it a step even further, is it rooted in any of my past experiences? I honestly believe a practice like that one can change your whole life. And it's something that I try all the time, no matter what situation I'm in, to bring that practice in. And everything in my body resists it, right? I mean, I don't want to do that. If I'm in a moment and I think you've done something wrong, <laughs> I want to go with my story. My story is very loud. But if I do that practice and I pause for a moment and I really try to do a quick personal inventory and say, like, what am I telling myself? That sometimes changes everything. And I believe that a practice like that one can change your whole life when you do it consistently. It changes how you approach things, how you interpret things. And it doesn't mean that you're automatically wrong about everything. I feel like that's a big misconception. But it strengthens your accountability and discernment in situations where you might just have been set off by something or misinterpreted something or just, just were led astray by either your emotions or circumstance, and you can just be brought back into the fold by asking yourself a few questions. And personally, I think of emotional sobriety as the ability to meet calamity and opportunity with serenity. And I'll say that again. <laughs> Emotional sobriety is the ability to meet calamity and opportunity with serenity. And I think that the opportunity 
aspect of that is important because navigating hardships, loss, disappointments, it's all incredibly difficult. I think a really good example of this is when real love, like the real love, (laughs) walks into your life, the safe love, the strong love, the one who sees you and supports you, sometimes that can be really hard to accept. Like that love is almost more challenging to accept because without any effort, it brings to mind all the times that you have accepted less, been loved poorly or loved others poorly. Because here you have this shining example of beautiful, powerful love in front of you and all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, (laughs) what have I been doing? And emotional sobriety says, all of that can be true and I can have compassion for the younger version of myself that didn't have these tools. And I can do better in the current situation now that I know better. I think being emotionally sober also means that I have the opportunity to meet myself where I am with accountability instead of harsh judgment. And sometimes those two things can get confused. You know, accountability sounds a lot different than judgment. I don't feel as if being emotionally sober is something that I really find outside of myself either. Because for me, it actually feels much more like getting closer to myself, who I am beneath the layers of societal identity. And it creates the space for you or for me to return to our core values. And core values will help you navigate any relationship, any situation or hardship in life. I mean, having very grounded core values means that there's nothing outside of me that can influence the way I respond. And a perfect example of that is making the decision to be a compassionate person without virtue testing every person that crosses your path. And it's so much easier said than done. I mean, this is a lifelong practice to walk into every situation and already know what you are bringing to the table, no matter what anyone else brings. And I say respond, not react, because that's another aspect of emotional sobriety. It's showing up for what is versus acting out based on what has happened. It may not seem like a big difference, but if you've ever really messed up in your life, (laughs) if you've ever really harmed someone, you know the difference between someone responding to your mistake versus reacting to you. It's worlds apart, and it changes everything because it turns a mistake into a teachable moment that you'll probably remember for the rest of your life. And I think that sometimes in these conversations, saying nothing outside of me can influence how I respond can be misinterpreted as some sort of spiritual bypassing. You know, someone harms me and, oh, I'm fine no matter what. It's not that. It's saying you're not going to change who I am at my core. If I'm not a violent person, you're not going to make me a violent person. If I don't use harmful words, you are not going to inspire that in me. I'm going to show up with the tools that I have. 
And I think that, you know, that sort of segues into a discussion of how we develop emotional sobriety, because there isn't a pill for this. (laughs) And I'm sure, you know, even if there was, a lot of us wouldn't take it. But one of the most transformative experiences is observing role models, finding someone in your life who has something you want. And that's not, I'm not talking about cars or clothes or even a relationship, but what they have on the inside, how they navigate life, how they resolve conflict, how they communicate and establish boundaries. I think about people in my life who've done this and they walk into a room and I, my entire nervous system just exhales. I can relax and they have something I want. And I don't just stop there. Emotional sobriety develops when you become willing to take contrary action and do something you've never done in order to achieve something you've never had. There's an element of willingness that helps to develop these muscles and it helps. I mean, I actually think it's pretty necessary. There are also so many personal practices that can strengthen your emotional muscles as well. And I'm sure you've heard all of these or had someone recommend them to you or it seems like, yeah, 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 I've got gratitude. <laughs> you know? um, but there's, there's tools that when practiced daily with intention can really help to develop these muscles. And, you know, that brings up the question, like, have you committed to these practices consistently and witnessed their transformative powers over time or even trusted yourself enough to use them in stressful situations? Because it's all well and good to read about conflict resolution skills, but if you've never actually used them in a situation You don't know that they work. You don't know that they work for you. You don't know how to hone them and how to strengthen them. And I think a daily meditation practice is is very accessible. And I'm not saying everyone has the time, but I feel like that's something you don't need anything outside of yourself. And that's how I like to start my day with at least 15 minutes of meditation. Sometimes I just sit up in bed before I even do anything else. I just sit up. And I start right there. And this is important because I'm making the choice to begin my day in silence, in stillness, and serenity before I'm bombarded with anything. And all of the things that we believe are normal to start our day with are actually bombarding us with messages. So when I take that time and cultivate that space just between me and a higher power, God, the universe, whatever word you want to use, that stays with me throughout the whole day. You know, I used to have jobs where I had to sleep on my phone at night and check my email and messages 24 hours a day. And I was constantly overstimulated and bordering on fight or flight mode. And it severely impacted how I made decisions. I'm sure it distorted my perception and influenced how I responded to everyone and everything in my life because I was constantly just at that level. Another practice that I swear by is journaling. And journaling can feel like a refuge for some people. And I know for other people, it can feel like a chore. I have kept journals since I was a kid. (laughs) What I was writing about back then is obviously very different from what I write about now, but the muscle memory has strengthened in all of that time where 
I don't underestimate the power of pen to paper because I know that in my own life, it has been wildly transformative. Sometimes you just need to purge your emotions without the reactions of others to sift through your story of what you feel is happening. It's just you, pen, paper, and you can just get it all out with no self-consciousness of what is actually bothering you or bringing you joy without feeling like you're boring someone or entertaining them or you have to wrap it up into a nice little package. You can just see where your words take you. And for me, that has changed my life. Another simple practice is checking in with yourself throughout the day using the acronym HALT. And I will tell you, when I first heard about this, I was sort of cringy. <laughs> you know, I'll be the first one to say it. Acronyms or, or when things rhyme <laughs> is always a little bit cringy, but there's a reason why they work. There's a reason why they're so accessible for people because they do work. And HALT helps me to discern if I'm actually feeling what I think I'm feeling or if I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And it is honestly humbling when you start to regularly apply this and you realize that an overwhelming number of situations are exacerbated by the fact that you haven't had anything to eat all day or you're exhausted from no sleep or your fight with your partner is influencing how you deal with the person at the bank. And it's really a simple version of a personal inventory. And I don't think that we're encouraged to do that often enough to take that pause and to ask ourselves the questions, hey, do I have the four basic things that I need to make healthy decisions? I was not taught that growing up. And as an adult, it's been a challenge to say, no, I'm going to make an effort to do this when I feel that I'm spinning out of control a little bit and ask myself. My last suggestion for building emotional sobriety is the one that most people can't see themselves doing. Uh, I believe, and anything I say on this podcast is literally what I believe the day I'm recording it. It could change the next day, but I believe an important aspect of emotional sobriety is healthy self-esteem and accurate self-perception. So how do we gain self-esteem? by regularly engaging in esteemable acts. And if I'm being of service to my community or the people in my life on a regular basis, there's no one on earth who could call me a name or try to attack my character that I would listen to. Because I know who I am through the actions I take and the kindness I regularly share. And it's not some theory in my head of this vision of the person I want to be Life is an action program, and I have the actions to back up my intentions. And I think that that's really important. When I first began working on my own emotional sobriety, and for me, it was work. <laughs> you know, this was not a gentle thing. I was not raised or grew up around people who took this seriously or prioritized it. But one of my biggest fears was that the world was going to run me over. And our fears may not be valid, but they're definitely loud. And my fears can be summed up in three ways. I'm afraid I'm not good enough. I'm afraid I don't have enough or won't get enough. And last, I'm afraid that you're going to take something away from me. That's the basis for all of my fear. 
So when I first began learning about emotional sobriety, I honestly felt like I was being asked to show up to a street fight holding flowers where everyone else is holding knives. And I mean, it was visceral. And that's pretty fear-based thinking. And yes, it may be due to my own life experiences with some incredibly difficult people, but is that an excuse to not work on myself in this way and to develop emotional resilience and sobriety and muscles? And it's not. It's not a good excuse. But that's not to say that there aren't secondary gains from not being emotionally sober. You can exert a lot of control by being in a bad mood all the time. Think about the most toxic work environment you've ever been in. Who held all the power? Probably the person who misbehaved or acted out the most. I mean, that has been my experience in work environments. And when people behave this way, they create a situation where other people walk on eggshells. And it might feel good to have all of that control, but do you feel connected? Do you feel cared for? Do you feel respected or loved? Probably not. I think it helps to focus on the secondary gains of developing your emotional sobriety and look at what you're gaining instead of focusing on what you're losing. Sort of my analogy of like, well, I'm going to lose. I'm going to show up to this street fight holding flowers. I'm talking about love and compassion. And they're just going to stab me to death. It's not focusing on that. Focus on what I'm gaining by bringing those quote-unquote flowers. I'm gaining people's trust because people will now know what to expect from me in any situation. I gain connection because people feel safer with me. And I also gain clarity in my relationships and the ability to establish and maintain healthy boundaries. A friend of mine once told me that if the only tool I have in my emotional toolkit is a hammer, then everything in my life will start to look like a nail. And that really resonated with me because I honestly believe that the more I've developed my toolkit, the more options I have for addressing situations in a way that is mutually beneficial and based on compassion, hammering everything and everyone into the ground seems to be a form of self-sabotage under the guise of self-protection. And I don't want that. And that has really been revealed to me over time the more I've used these tools. Life is very much an action program, and I have to use these tools in my life, in my real life, in order to be effective and in order for them to feel like second nature. We can all get very cerebral about the person we imagine ourselves to be, but practicing these tools takes time and commitment. And like any new skill, it's awkward and uncomfortable at first. There has definitely been some experiences in my own life where I really thought I was approaching the situation with boundaries and communication and clarity and kindness, and they just ate me for breakfast. And that cannot be the thing that sways me from this path. If anything, it has to remind me that I don't want to be that person. If I see someone coming towards me with compassion and honesty, I want to be able to show up and meet them where they are. So it almost encourages me to continue doing this work. You know, I like to compare emotional sobriety to my yoga practice because I don't practice yoga to perform asana on the mat in a temperature-controlled, well-lit studio 
I practice yoga regularly to bring my practice off the mat and into my daily life. My yoga practice helps me to find my emotional and physical edges. I develop the ability to discern between discomfort and pain. I also establish awareness and boundaries with myself, my thoughts, my physical body. And when I do that on a regular basis, I'm better able to do that with other people. I mean, I could probably talk about this topic for days, but um, I think I'm just going to wind down a little here because there's just so much to explore when we're talking about emotional sobriety. And I'm sure I'll return to it in many future episodes. But for now, I encourage you to take some time and learn more about emotional sobriety and how you can develop it in your own life. For me, I'm going to do my best to anchor into my own strength, resilience, willingness, and compassion as I consistently and consciously look for opportunities to utilize these skills. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you so much. Please make sure to follow this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And check out the playlist I put together for this episode on Spotify. I will label it with episode number two. You can follow me on Instagram at Love Letters and Mixed